Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 This podcast is brought to you by Sage Motion. Sage Motion enables movement training through wearable haptic feedback. Sign up for a demo at sagemotion.com slash demo and write boom in the comment box. Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. Also known as boom. Yeah, I went for the full <laughs> extended version you felt, today. You felt full today. <laughs> I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. And we have two awesome interviews this month with people who are developing approaches to apply biomechanics in practice. So things like performance training or even just standard weight training, but in a safer way. Part one was released earlier this month with Dr. Brian Weinberg and Dr. Patrick Welsh from Athletic Movement Assessment. And they're two doctors of chiropractic medicine who develop movement screens and can be used with everyday patients, clients, elite athletes, and teams. So if you haven't listened to that, make sure to go back and check it out. This episode is part two with Bill DeSimone, and Bill is a personal trainer who focuses on teaching and sharing biomechanics and form training to help prevent injury and improve performance over a lifetime, not just today. Yeah. Um, before we get started, we wanted to ask that if you enjoy Boom, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us, and share Boom with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. This helps us keep going and keep booming with you all. Helps us wake up every day. And just wake up every day and like really <laughs> like find purpose in our life. So thank you. <laughs> now we're going to jump right into the interview. Hello, everyone. Today, we're talking with a personal trainer, certified health coach, author, and a boom fan, Bill DeSimone. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited to have you on. We were wondering if we could first start off with how you got inspired to study human movement. So actually, I didn't. I did sports as a kid. I got into weight training in the 70s. I started working as a personal trainer in the early 80s and got various personal training certifications along the way. But the real motivation was rupturing my own biceps and triceps in 1998. And then my grad work was rupturing my rotator cuff in 2016. What an education. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why I, I didn't just take the attitude, like injure myself and just go back to what I'd been doing. I'm not quite sure, but I went in a different direction because I was, I was a little surprised. I'd been a trainer for a lot of years. I'd been working out for many years. So nothing in the exercise literature, and I use the term loosely, gave me a clue that this was about to happen. Mm. My study was strictly based on my own injuries to figure out what happened. And did you get to the bottom of it and or find any other people who had experienced similar things along the way? Well, I think I did. But the tricky part is chronic wear and tear is going to happen whether you exercise or do sports or not, right? Just with age-related changes to the joints. And in my case, the triceps I tore because I fell skating and landed on the flat of my forearm. So that was, that was a fairly, you know, that was acute. But the biceps just kind of, I was doing a curl in the basement and nothing dramatic. 
and I felt a little snap on the shoulder blade and then like a slithering down the front of the arm. Mm. So I put the weight down, I put my sleeve up, and there's a black and blue golf ball where my bicep had been. Had been, past tense. Had been, yes. <laughs> yeah. It got my attention. Yeah. So in the process of figuring out what went on, I kind of realized that a lot of what I had learned in the name of exercise contradicted what I was finding in the anatomy and biomechanics books. Mm. And then in talking with other peers and everyone having similar injuries or similar aches and pains or similar problems with the same exercises that kind of got me in the direction of looking at like what exactly is happening here. So I tried a few different ways of communicating that the last one being the joint friendly fitness book. I try to lay out exactly like which part of the exercise puts your joint in a vulnerable position. You know, like myself, like a lot of others, I started working out in my teens and twenties and you can kind of get away with a lot on your body in your teens and twenties. I like to say that mistakes I made in my teens haunted me in my 40s, but mistakes I make now haunt me in a couple hours. <laughs> the feedback mechanism is a little different. <laughs> Much faster. So, for instance, using extreme ranges of motion and what I thought were good training techniques in my 20s wore my shoulder out enough that the biceps ruptured in my 40, about 40. Mm. And the only thing I had done to wear and put that wear and tear on my shoulder was exercise. So my idea was that what I, even though I was doing it in the name of exercise and to benefit my body, I was inadvertently bringing on a lot of unnecessary wear and tear. The thing is, when you start, you have a lot more margin of error. And so you think that's the way it works. But just like in martial arts, like every martial artist before 40 is going to kick everyone's ass in the world. And then around 40, when the injuries start to pile up, all of a sudden they want to get into the internal aspects of the art, master the technique, because it's just age-related changes that doing this physical activity wrong doesn't help. So that's where I found myself, where everything I thought was working up to about age 40, I realized, ooh, not the best idea. And in talking to my peers, we all had similar experiences, so... Do you think that if you went back and told yourself what, you know, at 20, what you knew at 40 or now, do you think you would have listened? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> because you don't have this today, but the influences in the 70s were like the muscle magazines where Arnold Schwarzenegger, who you might know as a movie star and a governor, his claim to fame came as a bodybuilder. And in the 70s, we didn't have the volume of material that there is today. So where you learned how to lift weights was generally from the muscle magazines. And that was your frame of reference. So I remember when I first started working with physical therapists in the early 80s, and I'd be working out like-minded trainers, and we'd put 100 pounds around our waist, and we'd do it uh, dips and let our bodies sink as low as we could go on our shoulders. And the physical therapist would run over and say, no, don't do that. You're going to ruin your elbows. We were not receptive. <laughs> no, we're going to ruin our elbows doing triceps exercises. We're going to ruin our shoulders doing dips. I didn't set out to write for seniors or, or active adult exercise, but active adults and seniors are most receptive to this. Because mm, they're feeling it. They're feeling it already, right? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to get those proactive changes. It is, but 
in recently working with interns from Rutgers Exercise Science Department, where they haven't had that muscle magazine influence because there are no magazines anymore. They don't have to unlearn what they've already saw or what they've already experienced. They're just taking their textbook physiology. And when I train them here, it doesn't occur to them that there's a different way. They don't have to unlearn the stuff like my peers and I did, where we were heaving and dropping weights and, and other other reckless practices. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's um, finding the right audience. It's interesting. Mm. Yeah, I like how you say unlearning these things too. I used to do gymnastics and we had the Arnold Schwarzenegger classic once a year was one of the big gymnastics meets we had. And then, and so half of it was the gymnastics meet and then the other half was more of the big bodybuilding competition. And so we would always kind of explore that and see what's going on. I think there's also similarities kind of crossing over into other sports too. I think, I think about gymnastics and the things that I did then that are now causing me aches and pains or, you know, soccer players or people that don't want to give up their high impact or cutting sports as they're getting older, but it can be doing damage to their body. But in this case, there's ways that the strength building can be really helpful as you're getting older, if done in the correct way. So when you do sports, you, you put on cleats and you go on a soccer field, you're kind of accepting the risk that comes. So cutting is part of the sport, stopping short is part of the sport, and you're kind of accepting that. You accept the fact that, maybe not in words, but you accept the fact that you might tear an ACL or a meniscus or an Achilles tendon. Any sport, you're kind of accepting the risk that comes from the competition. The issue I had with the conventional exercise world is we're doing this to get in shape. Like we're doing this to help our bodies you know, so why are we letting a, a barbell load our spine in flexion, for instance, or putting our shoulders in impingement to do a certain exercise? And part of the reason why we're doing it is we didn't relate the two. We didn't relate the fact that there are vulnerable joint positions that conventional exercise puts you in. We just accepted it. So sort of the work I do, aside from the training and, and the interns, is I went through all the exercises I thought I knew and compared them to what those vulnerable positions were from the anatomy and biomechanics books and modified how I coach them. Can you tell us a little more about that? Like how specifically do you take that knowledge and translate it? Because I think that's something I struggle with trying to figure out how do we take like some of these like really specific biomechanics pieces of knowledge, but like actually make them usable and understandable by other everyday humans. If you do, if someone does a bench press, or a push-up, or any chest exercise. Sure. Okay. It's frequent that you're encouraged by your coach or the, the instruction on the machine, or just because you think it's the way to do it, to let your elbows really extend, like your shoulder gets hyperextended, and then to push out from there. Mm. But when you read about anterior instability of the shoulder, one of the things they say, the textbooks say not to do is, don't load back that far. So why wait until you injure the shoulder to stop loading back that far? When I'm coaching the exercise here, for instance, I, I'll put my hand or what I'll tell somebody is keep your hands in your peripheral vision. Oh. If you're looking straight ahead as your hands are coming back, if you can still see your hands, you're okay. But as soon as your hands disappear, you have a little margin of error, right? That's about where you want to stop. A peg fly station where you're doing this. 
Yep. Yeah. Opening. I think just about every brand name encourages, well, the machine allows it, maybe the trainer encourages it to come back far past the plane of your shoulders. Mm. Okay. Well, this position, abducted, externally rotated, and hyperextended, is a very bad position for your shoulder. <laughs> As baseball pitchers and swimmers know and martial artists know, you do not really want to be in this position. Yeah. But tech fly machines and tech flies with dumbbells and behind-the-neck pull-downs regularly put you in that position. Mm. And in the exercise literature, they'll give some kind of wishy-washy warning, like if you have shoulder problems, this might not be for you. But in reality, it's a bad position for every human shoulder. Yeah. It's just yeah. that when you're 20, the consequences don't show up right away. When you're 40 or 60, you're going to know, oops, this was a mistake. Yeah, it's really resonating with me, actually, from volleyball. I've gotten a lot of shoulder pain, and I was just talking about the same thing with my physical therapist, and like for serving or hitting, for example, instead of using my torso and my core to rotate back, I'm just rotating back with my arm. And again, kind of putting it, I'm a very mobile person, almost like hypermobile. And it's actually turned out to be a bit of an issue for me in my later, you know, as I'm getting older, because I haven't adequately like prepared the strength to like to not have that mobility and then I'm putting my body in vulnerable positions and so this is like really ringing a lot of parallels to what's going on in my life and, and I'm curious the people that you're training are their goals typically to be active in their sports are their goals to be stronger are you training bodybuilders but in a safer way like what are sort of the or is it a range of people and go and the goals that they have that you're training to do this these like more safer techniques i'm training all those people you mentioned parents and grandparents because mm, mm-hmm. all those people you mentioned until they start to hurt they're not really receptive yeah wow. yeah okay once they start to hurt all of a sudden now you know now it says gee i vaguely recall not going too far down on a bench press being bad let me find that guy yeah <laughs> You know, their parents or their grandparents who already are a little skeptical of lifting weights, for instance, they're very receptive, right? So when I say keep your hands in your peripheral vision, in person, I'll put one hand behind the person's elbow. So when, they're, when their elbow is coming back, they feel my hand so they know, to, okay, now it's, that's far enough and move forward. In person, I'll do that. And then again, if I'm giving somebody who's going to work out on their own, for instance, that phrase about keep your hands in your peripheral vision. You know, so what you said about volleyball, your job in volleyball is to serve, right? Mm. That's the point. And the difference between using your core and just using your arm, that's really subtle. But in the gym, these movements are pretty gross if you're paying attention to them. But I guess today's analogy would be Instagram-type influencers. My day was the muscle magazines, but it was a much much more dramatic picture when someone is all stretched out. You see all the veins and all the muscles rippling. Ah, That's a much more dramatic picture than just from here to here, say. Right. Uh, So that's the image that would get locked in. Ah, interesting. It's kind of like the filters. 
again, this is, the people who are most receptive to this stuff are the people already starting to hurt. Who are hurting, which is, I think, the problem or one of the challenges with physical therapy in general, too, because people are going, when it's too late, they're already hurting, and then they go, and then they expect to feel better right away. And, and as you're saying, this is after 20, 40, 60 years of doing this. It's not something that is going to resolve in a matter of weeks or even months or so. So I could imagine that's also challenging. Well, and even more subtle is that, so having ruptured the biceps and triceps, I also ruptured this rotator cuff. And I was a physical therapy patient. And there's an entirely different orientation. Getting rehab for this, it was more about getting the muscles to coordinate. It wasn't necessarily the same thing people go to a gym for. When you're trying to get the muscles to coordinate and be able to lift your arm over your head without hitching your shoulder up, that's much more subtle than pushing weights over your head. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a bit of a gap between where actual usable information is and the audience who would receive it. It makes me think like we go to a doctor for a physical every year. We go to regular dental cleanings. We go to regular, some people go to regular mental health resources like therapists. We almost need that regular like trainer or something to just check and like make sure things are aligned and you're doing things properly. I think if it was more sort of like a standard practice that way, then we could catch people earlier before they feel the pain (laughs) of their practices. And practices that I think bring more awareness to our bodies too. I think that's also, it feels like sometimes we're so disconnected with how we're moving and being able to visualize or like know where our bodies are in space and really needing that feedback from someone. See, now this is where I think what you're doing could play a big role because unfortunately in the exercise slash fitness world, there is good information out there, but it's completely overwhelmed by the amount of influencers and sales hype and shtick. So for instance, for every one of me saying the upright row puts you in impingement, here's an alternative way to do it, or, or here's exercises to do that don't put you in impingement. For every one of me, there's, I don't know, 100 influencers with better credentials than I have saying, oh no, upright rows are fine. Mm. Whereas you guys don't have that with biomechanics. You guys could be a bit more credible because you have the degrees and your field hasn't gotten as cluttered (laughs) as mine. Mm. (laughs) Melissa, I keep thinking about all the ways that we could use the Sage Motion system for movement training through wearable haptic feedback. Me too. It made me think about our in-lab interventions to improve gait symmetry for stroke patients and how awesome it would be if they could access that from their own homes. Definitely. It is so portable, easy to use, and could be personalized for different people. It was so nice to hear from the team, too, directly in our personal demo. Yeah, and our listeners can sign up for their own demo at sagemotion.com demo and write boom in the comment box and then let us know your ideas for using it. What do you think we can do, I guess, what would be helpful as scientists to help in that way from your perspective? Well, for instance, again, I'm going to say magazine again. Magazine's probably not the right word anymore, but you know, magazines always have articles on posture, right? But it's written by a trainer. And for every trainer, every exercise person who might write a good article on good posture, you'll have dozens of influencers showing exercises that don't have good posture. You don't have that to compete with. So your voices can stand out because your peers, or I assume your age and younger, 
you don't have that clutter that you have to try to distinguish yourself from because your predecessors did not do a great job of promoting it, except <laughs> academically. Yeah. Right? But that's okay because you don't have the same clutter that's in the fitness and exercise field. So, for instance, you guys should be the ones writing the articles on exercise for bone density or, or joint health. You guys should be on the um, sports talk shows talking about injuries or things teams are doing to prevent the injury, like the different motion capture things you, you talk about or marketless motion capture. Some of the high-end stuff that you guys have interviewed people for, you know, little league players and young athletes should be aware of that. Other PhDs are aware of it, right? So there's a certain amount of meeting people where they are. So, you know, you run the risk of dumbing it down too much. The tightrope you, you guys have to walk is you want to keep your credibility with your peers, your PhD peers. Yes. But you have to talk to people where they are. I've attended my share of lectures by college professors. They forget they have a captive audience for a semester. If you have an hour on a weekend seminar, or a, a adult education, a community education thing, you kind of have to get to the point. You can't do that slow build like you might do in a semester course. So I'm sure it's an art. I would imagine you don't want to alienate your peers in the academic world, but if you want to reach that bigger audience, you're going to have to meet them where they are a little bit and kind of pull them along with you as opposed to talking over their heads right away. I found early on, like in the early 2000s, if I would give a talk to other trainers, if I would lead with his anatomy and biomechanics, and this is what it means for exercise, drool coming out of their mouth, <laughs> eyes roll up in their head. <laughs> I mean, I would just lose people. And by the time I said, and this is what it means for exercise, they were so far gone. One year I gave a presentation in a gym and I said, okay, do this exercise. And they did it the way they thought. And I said, okay, here's how I would coach the exercise. Look at this slide, and that's why. This is why. So, for instance, you know a back hyperextension exercise, like a back extension? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whether it's over a ball, over a bench. Well, don't load the spine in flexion is a very standard piece of back care guideline. But in gyms, people load the spine in flexion all the time, right? They do a deadlift from the floor, or they squat all the way down so their lower back rounds the wrong way. So in this one talk, I started with the exercise, then I modified it based on how I would coach it, and then I showed the slide showing the back and the knee and showing the vulnerable positions I was trying to avoid. So that direction worked much better than leading with the biomechanics and, like I said, within minutes just losing everybody. So, again, you got to kind of halfway meet people where they are. Mm. You can kind of coax them with you as opposed to getting too far over their head and you just lose them. Yeah, I like the idea of meeting people where they are, even in the insofar as like I like doing yoga classes and I love when the instructor comes around and kind of fixes your pose or your posture in the pose. And I think I'm picturing that, like you walking into a gym and saying, you know, to these young twenty year old college athletes that are or just college students I should say, that are maybe doing things a certain way, maybe meeting them in, in that space and just how do we integrate this knowledge? Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember when my son, very first week in college, he calls, an actual phone call, which I suspect your generation doesn't actually use the phone for calls. <laughs> and he says, I'm in the gym. What the hell are these people doing? I was like, 
they're doing stuff that I wasn't going to have to teach you not to do. I only showed him the end result of, of how I was doing things. And since he was working out in my studio or in our basement, he didn't have bad examples to watch. Wow. So when he goes to the gym and he sees people, let's say, deadlifting and they're rounding their back or they're deadlifting off a bench, or he would see people doing the fly exercise, stretching out as far as they can, or a dumbbell pullover over a bench and the weights pulling their shoulders as far overhead as possible. It was completely foreign to him. And I said, well, you're seeing what I was not going to have to unteach you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of your teachings and, and what you do in your practices, and I'm assuming this relates back to at the beginning when you're talking about not putting your joints in vulnerable positions, but you've invented what you call moment arm exercises with congruent exercises. And so we were wondering if you could explain this concept of congruence and what it means when it's applied to exercise. So the first attempt I did at communicating this material was a, a manual called Moment Arm Exercise, which I have mercifully let go out of print <laughs> because I was writing it for me. Like I was putting my notes together from figuring out what, what, what happened to myself. And then I ended up with the whole, you know, I redid everything I knew, so I put it into a manual. But it reads like the textbooks I was reading at the time. So I kind of let it quietly go away. But the idea of congruence came out of that where in mathematics, a curve is congruent if it coincides exactly with another curve. Mm -hmm. So in moment arm exercise, I was looking at the muscle torque curve of a joint motion, elbow flexion, and I was matching that up with the resistance moment arm created by a weight. And I was trying to match up peak muscle, the angle for peak muscle torque with maximum resistance moment arm. So if peak muscle torque happens at about 70 to 90 degrees of elbow flexion, and you have a barbell, and when your elbow is at 90 degrees, that's the maximum resistance moment arm, that would be congruent. Mm. Yeah, and I was going to say that requires, like I'm thinking of all the knowledge that's required to even understand that sentence, right? <laughs> exactly. So first of all, you have to acknowledge that there is a joint angle for peak muscle torque. Right, the muscle magazines and the fitness or the exercise world has you exercising the same muscle from different angles as if it makes a difference. But in reality, your biceps is always going to be strongest at 79 degrees of elbow flexion. Whether you curl back here or you curl back here, you're always going to be strongest there. And how I stumbled onto that is when I ruptured the biceps and triceps, when I got back to lifting weights, some exercises I really didn't miss a beat. And other exercises, I couldn't hold the position or get into the position. And so I took out my 1994 NSCA Essentials textbook, found a chapter on biomechanics, found those peak muscle torque graphs. So my thought was, well, as long as I train where the peak muscle torque is, I don't have to worry about trying to train here or train back here. And then in moment arm exercise, I tried to figure out where all those joint angles were and then match up the exercises that lined up with that. And it wasn't just a academic exercise because I literally couldn't hold it. Like when I ruptured this triceps, that's one less muscle stabilizing the shoulder. So when I would try to do this exercise, my elbow would be all over the place. Mm. Oh, wow. So that's not good. <laughs> over 20 years, it's calmed down a little bit. 
but it was really it wasn't like just an intellectual curiosity it was very practical you know i tried to do these exercises i can't what happened that concept that idea of matching the angle for peak muscle torque and the maximum resistance moment arm people the nautilus company was trying to do that in the 70s and 80s with the cam and the companies that got into isokinetics were trying to do that where they were trying to match the varying muscle torque and before them there was a swedish doctor named xander around late 1800s, early 1900s, who also tried to address that. He did it with, with equipment that was mainly in Europe. And he was very aware that the muscle had, there was a peak of muscle torque. There you go. Wow. Wow. Looks like a torture devices. This is a curl machine. <laughs> Leg curl and a stepper and a pull-down machine. So what he did with those machines is, so so he... He realized there was a peak muscle torque, and so he would isolate the joint action and with a lever create the maximum resistance moment arm at the joint angle of peak muscle torque. And that was in the, around 1900. However, so getting back to the original question about congruent, over time, I kind of realized that the, the muscle torque was going to take care of itself. And it was more important to figure out what the vulnerable joint positions were. So if you have an exercise and peak muscle torque happens at a different angle than the maximum resistance moment arm, not really as important as avoiding the vulnerable joint position. And avoiding the vulnerable joint position, it's a little less conceptual. Again, keep your hands in your peripheral vision. is much easier for a user to engage than, okay, here's a joint angle of peak muscle torque, and now we're going to coordinate the maximum resistance moment arm. Then congruent to me became congruent with safe joint function. And that's kind of where I ended up with it. Much cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> so. thank you. I mean, I love hearing like these stories of how you can see your personal passion for it, your motivation, you really digging deep into trying to get the answers to these things and then also trying to pay it forward. How do I actually use this that helped me to help other people. It's so cool to see that in your story. And I'm wondering, it sounds like you like to experiment with lots of different things. I'm wondering if there's a time or story you have of when something just totally didn't work or, you know, kind of felt like a failure, what you learned from it and where you went. Yes. The biceps failed, the triceps failed, the rotator yeah. cuff failed. <laughs> I knew the failure question was coming because I listened to your other podcast. <laughs> so you're ready. Maybe up to 20 years ago, I would have had a long list of fails. And I know you're being a little cheeky with the word. But after a while, you know, you just look at it as, or I, I look at it as, okay, it's more like, okay, that didn't work out the way I wanted. What didn't work out? What can I fix? What am I going to do differently next time? So, for instance, you know, the biceps and triceps fail, then I do moment arm exercise. And then after a couple of years, I look at it, and I'm like, man, this is clear as mud. Mm. So then I did another one where I tried to make it a little clearer. The joint-friendly fitness where there's an X, don't do that. There's a check, do that, do that, don't do that. And then bullet points. So while all text didn't work out the way I wanted, because like I said, when I read it afterwards, I was like, this thing. It's hard, yeah. It's thick, yeah. Yeah, it's dense. I was like, ooh, this is not. You know, you guys did the Zoom earlier this week. Mm, our impact statements. Impact statements. Yeah, we yep. did a workshop on impact. Yeah. In my time in the early 80s, there was a, a writer named Charles Garfield talking about peak performers and peak performance. He called it a mission statement. 
a mission that motivates. Why do you get up in the morning, right? You know, when you get up at three o'clock in the morning because you're dwelling on a problem at work, why? Why does it matter? And part of Garfield's stuff was course correction, that you have a mission that motivates, you set goals, and when things go awry, what do you do? Do you fall apart or do you just correct your course? And so, you know, you practice it for like 40, 50 years and eventually it becomes second nature. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, you know, I had at the beginning of the shutdown, a younger trainer called and asked, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to do virtual? Are you going to do this? Are you going to do that? I said, look, the first time you face financial crisis, you get a little concerned or you panic and you get through it and you figure it out. And the next time something happens, you get through it a little easier and you figure it out. Until now, it's like, you know, you have a shutdown. You're like, okay, yeah, I'll figure it out tomorrow. So if you look at fails as, okay, this didn't work out. What can I use? What did I learn from it? What can I fix? I think when I stop thinking like that, then I will be retired. (laughs) When I do something and it doesn't work out the way I want and I just stop thinking about it and I give give up, I'm retired. Like, for instance, now I'm, I'm taking wherever my board went. I'm taking this in, from print and I'm putting it into Kindle, which is a lot of work because the book is, is 75 exercises like that. If I tried to put this in Kindle, it would be illegible, right? If I just took a scan of this. So I have to figure out a way of making it readable on a Kindle because this was specifically designed to be a, a two-page book. I'm of the age where, to me, a book is the final product, but that's not where people want to buy it or read it. That's not where people want to be. So, okay, now I'll figure out how to do Kindle. And like I said, the day I stop thinking that way, I'm out. (laughs) I'm out. I think you'll always be adaptable. It sounds like, I hope that for you, actually, you know, I think you'll find new ways to do it. Definitely. Yeah. You know, like, again, someone my age, you know, social media or podcasting, this is to us, it's still new technology. We fumble around with it. But I think you can actually bring some actual legitimate body knowledge to a bigger audience, right? Um, like I said, for every one of me trying to put out something that there's a direct line between anatomy and biomechanics textbooks and my exercise advice, there's a hundred or more saying that doesn't count, my way counts. Whereas you guys don't have that. You guys are early enough into already podcasting that, and you don't have the baggage of your industry. Whereas you, you guys could actually reach people, actually teach them how to take care of their own bodies and not wait until 40 or 50 when you're in physical therapy trying to figure out, gee, what do I do now? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. We are yeah excited to see all the work that you're doing. And I think these are really good messages to share with the biomechanics community and really inspiring for us to get our messages out there and get the science out there to really help people and make a difference. So we'd be happy to share links to those different resources that you've been talking about in the episode notes if you want to share those with us. Um, If there's any other ways that people can connect with you, either a website or You've been talking about social media. I don't know if that's the best place for people to find you or if they want to learn more about your work, feel free to share. I'll send you the links. I did start, I restarted a YouTube channel where I actually have a video on how to shovel snow. It's key. (laughs) How to shovel snow and not hurt your back or your shoulders. Yeah, yeah. Another thing people like you should do, right? I mean, something as mundane as that. How many people like tread shoveling snow, right? So the YouTube channel has the exercise stuff and the snow shoveling video on it. 
there's a newsletter I put out once a month or so connected with the joint friendly material. I guess on Amazon, there's like a bio page, which is where the Kindle will be linked to and all that, all that social media stuff. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> You're becoming an influencer yourself. It sounds. <laughs> I doubt that very much. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, thank you so much for, for chatting us. We, we learned a lot. This has been really fun and we're excited to share all these messages with the community. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. That was an incredible interview with Bill. He's so knowledgeable and clearly has a lot of personal experiences that drive his work and also a lot of great science-backed information that he shares. And yeah, it's been really fun this month to really see biomechanics mm. translated to athletes and to people just training in everyday life and preventing injury in everyday life. So we really appreciate both of the interviews this month and hope that you've learned more about it and feel inspired to share biomechanics and make sure that it's translated so it can be applied to helping people. Yeah. And if you enjoyed this interview or any of the others we've had and learned something from the episode, please be sure to let us know and share this episode with someone you think would appreciate it too. Yeah. And thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics, the Stanford Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory for their support and for Peter Washington for the awesome boom music. If you'd like to be part of an episode, submit a research fail, someone to interview, or just, you know, hang out with us, email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at biomechanicsoom. And be sure to check out Boom on YouTube as well. We've got an awesome channel with all our interviews and you can finally put a face to a name because some of us only know us by our voices. (laughs) (laughs) And we're more than just two voices, okay? (laughs) I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. Biomechanics off our minds. minds.